In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We have received great feedback on our episode seven, Are We Becoming Less Resilient? Today, we decided to continue the conversation and provide solutions and maybe influence Sean on how to raise his son. Good afternoon, guys. Roger, Kelly. Hey. The discussion we had about resilience uh, was an excellent one. And and we started going off uh, in a direction about uh, our children. And I was asking a question because I'm trying to figure out as I raise my child the things that I can do uh, to make sure that he ends up being the type of person that I expect. So I wrote down three words, just three words of what I would like my son to turn into as a human being. So, I mean, imagine we go through these transition periods when we're toddlers and then young adults, and then eventually we grow into a full-grown adult, and there's certain things that we would expect from one another. So, I'm just thinking about with your children, um, maybe three words to describe the type of person that you want them to be as they grow up. If you can just think on the top of your head three words, if you're willing to share. What do I want them to be? Yeah, in terms of like an adjective to describe them as human beings. I, w- I would want them to be resilient. Mm-hmm. I would want them to be confident. And I, and I think I would, I would want them to be uh, fulfilled. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult for me to sit here and try to give you three words. And you got three kids. I've got three kids. They're <laughs> all different. The, the whole idea of having this like vision in our mind about who they should be um, can be a bit of a problem because you, be, you want them to be the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. But listen, we're, we've been conducting a, a podcast where there are certain messages that have been very clear on our end. We have genuine concern about where society and culture is moving in terms of developing resilience and helping people cope with the inevitable challenges that exist in living. And we've been very critical of what has become standard mental health care, which is, let's face it, 15-minute clinical interviews with a physician and a prescription pad. So we sit here today, I'm looking at these numbers and following this data as a clinical psychologist. The rate of suicide events for children between the ages of 10 to 24 increased nearly 60% between the years of 2007 and 2018. And now the data that's coming in over the past couple years, especially in the pandemic year, is even more frightening. I think we all can agree, and this takes us back to that previous podcast, that we as a society and culture are becoming much less resilient. Mm -hmm. And today's podcast is about talking in depth about how to raise resilient kids. So I think it starts with us trying to define what resilience actually is. Kelly, you identified that as one of your three words. How do you fellas define resilience? And that's that's kind of what I was leading into because as we were, you know, having the last discussion, to me, like resilience was initially like physical, you know, like uh, your ability to fall down and get back up, right? But it's it's much more than that, right? There's, there's, yes. there's the mental part of it. Absolutely. I think for the way I look at my students, when I see a resilient student, they know how to cope with failure. They know how to resolve conflict. They know how to um, calm themselves down when times of stress occur. Um, They can help others. They can empathize with others. Mm -hmm. They can utilize what they've learned from the things that they've gone through very well, and they can communicate effectively. I mean, I think resilience entails a lot of different things, but I ultimately think that when you look at a person who's resilient or a child who's resilient, I think they're very Uh, capable in understanding their mind, able to think about their own thoughts Mm -hmm. and not allow certain thoughts to distract them or deter them from 
you know, completing their goals. Okay. So Roger dodged the three words, but I'll share mine now and maybe you'll be willing to share three words um, afterwards. For me, it's, it's independent. I would like my son to have a degree of independence where he's willing to learn things on his own and not always ask for help. Like there will be times when he needs help and that's fine, but I like the idea of him being independent. Curious. I, I believe if anyone is curious in life, there's this continued learning that happens and it can happen in academics. It can happen in just, um, you know, exploring the world and being willing to leave your comfort zone. That curiosity drives a lot of things in it. And when we talked about critical thinking, you know, being curious point, kind of points you in a direction to research and read and come up with your own opinions about things. And then the last one is just simply caring. As a human being, there needs to be that empathy. And you touched on it as well. I want him to be a caring human being, to care about other people's feelings. And when it comes to independence, you know, not turn your back on people, but also be willing to help and, and lend a helping hand. Like Those are the three things that if I can walk away from a resilience conversation and how to raise a kid, you know, what can I do to guide him in that direction? Yeah, but I think you're moving in directions that are taking us further away from resilience. And obviously we have qualities that we want in good people. And if you start describing qualities of good people, I don't think we provide practical strategies to the people who are listening. So I think we have to provide practical strategies to parents and you're a parent. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about resiliency, we're, we're talking about the ability to respond to challenges, adversity, and a way that you can become effective. And Kelly was talking to this idea about distrust tolerance. And I think it's critically important and starts, I saw it starting around age two, that we have a responsibility to begin to model, teach, and shape within our children. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anyone is going to debate this point that many parents are parenting today uh, with guilt and fear. And the things that they're fearful of tend to be their own kids' emotional pain, their own distress, Mm -hmm. because the message has been bombarding us that if you feel emotional distress, you're at risk for low self-esteem, poor mental health, depression, anxiety, right? And it's really the opposite. Feeling distress is part of living. How do we learn to make room for it and use it to our advantage? So I think in, if we're going to provide practical strategies, practical strategy number one is let's make room for your kid's distress. As a parent, build distress tolerance skills. We talked about the helicopter parents, the lawnmower parents. They're coming in and trying to save their own kids from distressing situations. Okay, so let's, can we dive into that a little bit? Yes. So when a kid is, or your child is in a situation where they're stressed out, what would an appropriate action be for a parent to, you know, observe to watch what are the things that maybe one could say to the child Mm -hmm. because words matter. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Step one, identify what you're feeling. There's an emotional intelligence that's required. Mm -hmm. If you don't have this ability to identify and understand your own emotions, how can you use them to your advantage? Of course, they're going to feel like they're overwhelming you. So if you're experiencing stress, well, you're, you're experiencing stress for a reason. Are you talking about emotional intelligence of the parent, not the child? No. The child. Both, right? Okay. Like, I think you have to have a degree of emotional intelligence of the parent to be able to model <laughs> it and teach it in the kid, yeah, right? Yeah, but a lot of parenting is sometimes reactive, right? So a, a parent would need to control themselves in that situation to recognize maybe the opportunity that's being presented. Well, I want to be careful of overgeneralizing. I don't say parenting is reactive. I think the best parents are not reactive. Mm-hmm. They're actually observant, and there's purpose for what they're doing. Um, so acknowledging your emotion about what you're feeling. So even if a two-year-old is angry or upset, learning to like label that emotion, and it happened because of this. If you're experiencing stress, you're a student, what are you feeling stressed about? Okay. And it brings us into something that's really important, is that your emotions serve a function. And I have to tell people, please, if you're raising your kids, whenever they feel anxious, taking care of their mental health isn't avoiding. So a kid, I mean, look at where the direction we're going. Hey, Mr. Weatherhold. The implications of this, yeah. I'm not going to be able to take that test today because I'm anxious and I'm taking care of my mental health. That's what 
you know, that's but, what society is praising. And it's, it's actually happening. It is happening. So let's be clear, parents. Having strategies to avoid what you're feeling and control for it is not building resiliency and emotional intelligence in your kids. You are harming them. Build tolerance for their distress and teach them to act in it. The best thing you can learn is when you feel something that you can use it to your advantage and learn how to act with it. If you're anxious, learn how to act. If you're angry or upset with somebody, learn how to communicate. If something is really challenging for you and you're afraid of failing, learn how to face it, give your best effort, even though failure or struggle is a possibility. You will allow your kid to grow up with superpowers in today's society because everything else is going in the opposite direction. And I'm almost certain there are, there are political forces and industry-related forces who would love anything more than for you to feel very fragile and dependent, okay? Do not treat your kids as fragile. Anyone want to debate me on this? No, not at all. I, I, I won't debate you on it. Um. <laughs> I, I want to move on to another issue, though, if you could. I think if you, so I'll just call it the superlative problem. So another thing then after that is um, parents, myself, so I don't want to be a hypocrite here. I've done this. The superlative problem, telling your child they are the best at something, they are the fastest, mm-hmm. they are the nicest, they are the, you know, you find and you pick it. So the superlative of that word saying those things over and over again, what does that do to children in terms of resilience? If you're telling them that they're the best at something or you're the nicest person in the class or, oh, you're the friendliest, does that make any sense? It's the superlative problem. I love this because this is on my list to discuss today and it's called um, unrealistic praise, right? It's Mm. like building your kid up in a way that doesn't fit reality does not serve your child well telling them they're the best, they're the greatest, without having ever earning any of that does not lead that. It just gives them this false sense of uh, like self-importance. It's developing that narcissistic, fragile narcissistic uh, child. And we see this um, much more frequently in society. Listen, the world doesn't revolve around you. You're not that important. And if you want to be really important in something, then it's going to take a lifetime of dedication and work. You want to know why we have the extraordinary rise in mental health conditions and suicide events? Partially because of this. It's a fragile kind of ego that's being developed in this teen population. You know, one that is through screens and social media. You're, you know, you're presenting this sense of who you want other people to see. And it's not realistic and it's not fragile. It'll break down in response to stressful conditions. You can't, you can't escape stressful conditions in life. So if you want to be able to build your kid up to be able to deal with stressful conditions, prepare them for the realities of the world. So what's a healthy balance of that? And maybe the superlative is not the, the appropriate way, but there needs to be some kind of like praise. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So when is it appropriate and, and when is it not is really what it comes down to. You praise effort. Yeah. Right. So I have this on my list too as one of the things that are most important. Praise effort and not outcome. Mm, because yeah. wise people yep, yep. and successful people know that it's about the process and not the end. God, you know what? You're, you're making me see some of the parallels that exist in the real world. You know, I, I just came out of a corporate environment. And over the last 10 years, I would say there's been this emphasis on failure. You know, but let's let's identify why you celebrate failure because it's not about failing. It's about the learning from that failure, right? If you're walking away from failing with a uh, an item that you've identified as a key takeaway that you can then adjust and focus on for the next effort, that's the value in failing, right? Yeah, it's that growth mindset. Yeah, right. Yep, yep. We, we brought this up. This was Carol Dweck's work at Stanford. Growth mindset is that every time you struggle, it's an opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. And you just get stronger and stronger and you learn more and you learn more. And I love sports with this. We have, you know, I've talked about my son being a wrestler and, and as a sport, that's one-on-one. You can't really blame anybody else. But um, talking about praising effort and not outcome, you can win a wrestling match and not perform well. And you can also lose a wrestling match and really work hard and, and, and get better. Yeah. And so it's about that process. And we'd have to like look at academics, um, relationships, 
a lot of things in the same way. So you go into school, it's rare that somebody's getting, well, not so rare anymore since there's inflated grades, but for you to be really strong in every subject and be really talented in every subject is rare, right? But there's a process that you that really good students go through and they develop those habits and they're hard work, right? And they work hard and they do the best they can and if they fall short, they learn a little bit more and there's just this process that they live day in and day out. And that's the important thing with parents and we do this in parent training here when we're trying to shape behavior. We're telling them to catch them doing the things that you want them to do and then you look to praise it. And you know the outcome will eventually lead to positive results. So I did quite a few presentations over the years, uh, conferences on process over outcome. In fact, you were at, when we worked together, if you remember, I had completely transformed the grading and really tried to develop the idea of the process, rewarding the ideas. And it's very difficult to put a, like a number on that type of thing because it's always about the outcome being a, you know, a 93 to a hundred or, or whatnot. So in, you know, in my, in my line of work, it's very difficult to convince fellow educators, Hey, don't worry so much about the outcome because the outcome, if you talk about the product, the product is often what the teacher wants it to be anyway. That makes any sense. So Mm -hmm. here's my idea here's the paper I want, here's a rubric, you're going to follow exactly what I say, therefore you do it, you get a hundred, but you didn't really do your own thing, you did what the teacher wanted. So I, I'm, you know, I, I'm, it's very difficult to, to kind of teach that or, or to bring that into education. Well, I think that's a different conversation because then we're talking about, you know, how do we build critical thinking, creativity, problem solving in kids. But if we're just talking about building resilience, Well, life is going to bring that too. You're going to have to do something someone else wants you to do in a certain way, whether you agree with it or not, right? We're all going to have to face that. And so do you as a a kid have the ability, if you have questions or concerns or even want to challenge, have the skills to be able to do that and then be able to accept that you're going to have to do the best that you can within the parameters that you do? It goes back to that distress tolerance. What do we see more and more in society if things don't go the way that a kid wants? We're seeing the parents are coming in to solve the problem. So if we're going to talk about practical strategies, I really encourage parents as their kids start becoming of middle school age to teach them the skills to approach their teachers and try to solve problems there first. Mm -hmm. Same thing in athletics or other extracurriculars. Like these are opportunities to learn. You are not going to be handed a scholarship when you're 13, whether that's academic or whether it's athletic, but you're going to have conflict with a teacher. You're going to struggle. You're going to have a conflict with a coach. This is an opportunity to be able to teach them skills to be able to figure it out, right? If you go and do that for them, what happens when they go to college? What happens when they become an adult? What happens when they're in the workforce? Because you're going to face constant problems and difficulties. Everyone's different. You have to have the flexibility and ability to adapt and learn and respond to new people. And what are we seeing? A generation that's much less flexible. So you're going into college environments and things are falling short and they're falling apart. As if, as if it defines who they are. Parents can't come in, even though they try, even in college situations, to try to rescue them. And if we're looking at a generation that is becoming less resilient, more anxious, more depressed, it's because they don't have the skills in these situations and it's been shaped. It's been shaped in popular culture. It's been shaped since they were young. So this transitions into the next question I have. Um, With all of that said, I know as a parent, I'm certainly happy to see my children happy, you know, smiling. They come in, you know, they come home They're It's it's great when everybody's happy. But my question is, part of that is unrealistic. We talked about this on a a a podcast earlier. Kids do not need to be happy all the time. So why are we so focused on making them happy all the time? (laughs) I have that on the list as well. Yeah. Right. To be honest with you, as my child's 11 months old now, so I walk around and every time I see him, I want to see a smile on his face. 
and I act like an idiot half the time, right? Because that's when I get a reaction out of him. Yeah. But I know I can't be an idiot all the time. There's going to be a time where he's going to get older and more conscious and start walking around, and I don't need to see this goofy smile on his face laughing. So For the first, for when they're babies, that's the first thing you do, right? You look yeah. for that first smile, and then you're just like, oh, whatever I did, I want to keep doing that's it. And right. often it's yeah. just crazy stuff that you're doing to get them to yeah, smile. Exactly. Yeah, what's interesting here for me is I'm really kind of focused now on what people learn. And we should be, we should care about what people think and how they learn about their own emotional states. Let's say you grow up in an environment where when you're sad, when you're down, when you're anxious, there's little tolerance for that in your home. So we call that invalidation, right? Maybe they say, what do you have to be upset about? Or they also can like try to make you happy all the time, mm -hmm. sending the message that it's not okay to be sad. Mm -hmm. And ultimately what that leads to is when life serves you kind of those lemons, you don't have the necessary ability to make lemonade out of it. You have little tolerance for it. You have this judgment for it. It means there's something wrong with you for feeling it. So building acceptance of this and tolerance as parents and how you model it. You are allowed to be sad. You're allowed to be dis disappointed. If your 15-year-old gets broken up with or doesn't get invited to a party that he or she wanted to go to, it's okay to be disappointed at, about that. Is it enough to end your life over? Not if, they're, not if it's normalized and it's allowed to be there, mm -hmm. right? It only becomes something that you want to um, end your life over when it becomes a catastrophe in the mind of the individual and they're taught to view life in that way. One, I can't feel sad. There's something wrong with me. And of course, I've been rejected. So there's something inherently wrong with me. I've been built up to be this way. I'm supposed to be happy all the time. I'm supposed to achieve all these things. It's sold to me in really crafted packages. This isn't what I see on TV. This isn't what I'm told. There's something wrong with me. And that's where you start to see the very dangerous kind of coping mechanisms that are being developed. But guess what? If you're allowed to be sad and it's okay and it's normalized and there's a focus on how to face problems, overcome, I don't think you can become depressed. Like you can become immune to this. If you're allowed to be sad, if you're taught to accept it, if you're taught to use it to your advantage, if it's an opportunity to learn, then you're not going to take the steps that would lead you to become dangerously depressed, both internally and with your behavior. You know, um, um, we just had a really powerful interview with uh, with Jeremiah uh, James, country music, and you um, you you brought up a period in his life and how you were there to to help him out, and um, and and you you expressed that, and I thought that was really um, a good learning that he, you needed to feel, you needed to cry, you needed to go through this period in your grief in order to make it to the next step in, in your recovery. And I'm thinking about, you know, our sister um, has a four-year-old. And when I was doing the trip across the country, we stayed with them for a week. And I remember when we were leaving, she quoted her son as saying he was upset and he was sad that we were going and she wanted to talk to him about it. And he said, I have too many feelings right now. Like that's how you're trying to <laughs> verbalize it. And she was, she was allowing him permission to express it. And he said, I, mommy, I don't want to talk about it. I feel too much. Like he didn't know how to put it into words. I thought that was the number one, the cutest damn thing. But then also, you know, for a kid to experience that and it's hard to communicate. Like how do you, how as a parent then do you handle that appropriately? Yeah. And it's rare for a kid to actually try to communicate that. Mm -hmm. Um, because they don't have the vocabulary. Yeah. And so, I mean, I would say in that situation, I'm going to miss them too. Yeah. Right? And that's validating and that's accepting. And those little things matter. What would be invalidating? Why are you feeling that? You're going to see them again. Mm. Right? But that's a natural reaction that for is a lot a of people to I say. Know. I, I think that's the mistake I would make in that situation. Trying to make them feel better. Yeah. Right? As if what he's feeling is wrong. And I think that's a, that's a poor message. I mean, I'm reading all these Simone Biles um, social media posts that are coming from physicians and psychologists. And they're saying things like, good for her for taking care of her mental health. If, and the message is if you feel anxious, right? Because they don't know what's wrong with her. They're assuming that it's, it's performance anxiety. If you feel anxious, taking care of your mental health would be to like run away from the experience that's causing you anxiety. And that is such a, that's such a concern. How do we get there? 
Like that would have never happened a decade, a decade, um, a generation ago, mm-hmm. right? That would have never been praised. Now, I don't like the other end of the spectrum that that she's vilified. Like I don't like that either. Um, but I also don't like swinging to the other side and say, good for you. Like, what are we saying? Like, good for you to pull out of something or quit if you're feeling distressed about it. And those messages are what our kids are hearing. And that's why we're seeing so many kids want to self-identify with quote-unquote mental illness. You're being praised for it. So if you want to talk about what to be praised, and I said, you know, praise the um, effort, not the outcome. But also, you know, praise some other things that are important, right? You want to praise somebody having dreams, somebody facing um, problems, desiring to overcome them, having goals. We are designed as human beings to try to achieve things. That's how we've evolved as a society. So you should all be very concerned with any message that tells your kid that if they feel something or they can struggle, taking care of themselves is um, kind of avoiding that situation. I actually heard a mental health clinician do a, a talk and, a, and some social media posts on there's no such thing as laziness, that everybody knows their own limits. And I'm going to, you know, fight back right there. You know, there's laziness, right? Like people can stop themselves from doing things or pushing themselves. You don't know how to push yourself. Your mind will quit on you before you do. If you develop a relationship to your emotions that um, they're too much for you, and that's a belief, right? It's too much what I'm feeling. You are going to um, take a stance of when that happens, you need to pull yourself back. And I, I fully debate the point that that is you trusting your limits. Almost anybody who creates a life worth living pushes themselves in things that their mind initially told them that they couldn't do. The opposite would be to expose yourself. So if you didn't want to do something, you would expose yourself to and, and push through to actually do it. So is exposure the best way to help, you know, coping with that, with fear? I believe so. Yeah. I mean, as long as what they're facing is, is reasonable and realistic. So let's okay. talk about reasonable and realistic. I think you can help, you know, parenting, you can help me explain a little bit about well, what is reasonable with exposure because I have an anxious son he's one I would worry about. He's one that I think, you know, to me, there's, there's some, ang- I can see some anxiety gets what, in situations. How, how old is he? He's, he's 11. 11. Okay. Um, but that being said, I, I would want to know, well, okay. And I'm trying, I want to expose him to things that, you know, he might feel a little uncomfortable with. I've, sp- I've said this before, but I want to do it in a way that's not also going to completely aggravate that even further. Aggravate. Um, his, his fear of things. I want to expose him. You are you are you concerned about pushing him into isolation? Um, yeah, like, like, like pushing back. He he's very back. socially anxious. Yeah, and I want to. You know, I want him. Exposure would be you go and you do that thing, correct? Yes. So there's um, there's some steps to this, right? So I got this fear of heights. Um, you don't have to tell me that I have to bungee jump in order to live a great life, right? Like there's, I'm afraid that. The rope is going to break and my life is going to end. Well, here's you something to for you. Me. I told you your gutters needed to be cleaned. Have they been cleaned? Did you go up on your roof and clean those gutters? No. <laughs> Come on. I don't even have a ladder that goes that high. I got to hire somebody. Um, but you have to identify what is the feared expectancy, right? When I say feared expectancy, what do they expect is going to happen that they can't handle that's really bad? So for me, if I say if I you know bungee jump, I could die, you know, like it's not worth the thrill of bungee jumping for that possibility. I don't need that in my life. But if you're saying I could be rejected by another human or I could fail, I might not be good enough. I'll feel anxious. I'll embarrass myself. Obviously, we know that that would stop your son from doing things that are really important in life, like finding friends, a significant other falling in love, going to school, a job, you know, the things that are very necessary for creating a life worth living and to be able to take care of yourself. Now, how do you develop exposures for kids in a way that they can understand, right? So you have to, goes back to normalizing the fear, right? If you're allowed to feel anxious and you feel anxious too, and it's okay, well, then you're going to be focusing on doing things while anxious, right? 
And then when they do it, regardless of what the outcome is, you can come back and say, was that that bad? Can you handle it? And the answer is always yes, right? It's just learning to handle the emotions that come up. And you'll get better and better and better at acting with anxiety with repeated practice. So I can be really anxious about conducting a podcast, but the more I do it, the better I get. Mm -hmm. Because what was feared begins to kind of dissipate a little bit, right? You fear that I can't talk on a, on a topic. Um, it's going to be boring. Nobody's going to be interested. It's not going to be successful, right? All that self-doubt that's part of being human, it floods your mind, right? And you learn to just forge ahead even with that because you've made a choice. And that choice is within your personal values. Now, if you have a personal value that you want to get through 90 years of your life, without feeling anxious and, you know, trying to feel the least amount of distress possible, well, then you definitely would create a home where you just kind of hit out in your home. But if you have values that are to, like, develop strong relationships, contribute to society, be able to achieve what you've been, um, what you're blessed with, what your talent level is, if you want to promote hard work, if you want to promote resiliency, well, then, in your mind as a parent, map out what that would look like and then create a, a home environment that allows them to face those challenges. And that's one of the values of being involved in extracurriculars, um, being able to challenge them academically, to be able to help them socially. I'm thinking about as we, um, I mean, your son, he's, he's young, right? Um, yes, yeah. he, he hasn't really lived his life yet, but for, for many of us that might be listening to this, we could probably think back to moments in our life where we took risk um, and how important that was as a transition period. And maybe it, it took us towards something that has been really fulfilling. And, you know, I'm 43 years old. So I look back at some of the things that I've done in my life that typically I would have probably held back um, because of that fear of rejection or fear, fear of failure or the unknown. And those have all been the most rewarding experiences of my life that taking that step was probably a little challenging and hard and uncomfortable, but has really added tremendous value to my life. And I, I can I can list off a bunch, but I think anybody listening can probably identify one or two things that things in their life that have been those really transition periods for them. Um, and it's really putting you know, your child into that position where he's choosing to do those things that he's interested in that he may feel uncomfortable with. And I don't know how you force a kid into that situation. Yeah, I don't think we force it, but I, I think based off of everything that I've learned from the, even this podcast and, you know, to help me, you know, I just, you, you look at him, he's very socially anxious, right? So as a parent, I don't really want to focus on that at all, but at the same time, you know, I feel like I don't want him to have to have that keep going. He's going to middle school. And so here you go. I'm a, I'm a test subject right now. And I am, I'm getting a little bit like, Oh, is he, you know, I know he's going to be okay. I'm not going to say anything. He'll be fine. But I'm just, I wanted to know from how, do, how does a parent, you know, when you talk about exposing and now, how do you how do you get to that point? What what am I supposed to do as a parent? That's what I wanted to to know. Did I answer that question yep, for you? You did. Yeah, it was good. I'm 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 thinking about when I was probably his age. I was a very socially anxious kid. I, I remember being in school, and um, if I had to speak, my ears would get flush red, and people would point it out, which would then make <laughs> my face flush red, and I would I would be a cherry. Um, and I always had uh, some degree of anxiety because I knew that that was the reaction that happens if I'm ever called out and I'm uncomfortable. And I was a shy, shy boy, uh, but I did evolve. Yeah, how'd you get through it? Honestly, I just, I think constantly doing it and, and being exposed, sometimes unwillingly exposed, yeah. um, and then realizing I had to learn how to overcome it. And when you're young in your career and you have to do a presentation in front of people, you, man, you talk about that heart racing. That 
that's when you really start to um, to recognize that these are the things that you need to do if you want to progress in anything in your life. It's just nobody just nobody provides you a parachute to jump and get out of it, right? No. So like you think about what we're doing or the messages we're saying. I think uh, if we're in 2021 and you came home and you cried to your your parents, some of the most some of the least effective responses from parents are he needs an IEP for anxiety. Well, what would that include? So an IEP is an individualized education plan. Well, we have to provide some accommodations for their anxiety. I want to ask, where does life provide accommodations for anxiety? Like you go into work and you have to give a presentation. Are you going to walk into the boss's office and say, "Uh, I'm going to need extended time, extended deadline. Um, I'm not sure if I can be able to do this when, when you want me to, I'm just too anxious, right? Like we don't ask ourselves these questions because certain powers want to think about anxiety as an illness. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're creating more vulnerability, more dependence, more fragility, and consequently mental health problems. Yeah. I think we all develop our own coping skills to overcome those things. Absolutely. Talk a bit. Can you talk a little bit more about fragility? Like, um, so I know I certainly want, I I don't want my kids to be fragile, but, or fragile, is that what it is? <laughs> Yet I feel like, I feel that they are in, 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 in many of the experiences. So how can parents, how can I separate my, myself from that idea? Here's a new perspective. Emotional fragility has nothing to do with the intensity of the emotions a person feels. Let me repeat that. Repeat that. I was going to ask you to repeat that. <laughs> Emotional fragility has nothing to do with the intensity of the emotions your child feels, or anybody for that matter. Um, The intensity of one's emotions can be very biologically based. It's only if you view emotional intensity as a detriment, as something that um, that would lead you to become embarrassed, to not be able to perform, where it becomes uh, something that the individual would see as, as fragile. So if you experience your emotions intensely, you can also view them as potential superpowers. It's just your detection system on hyper alert. Mm-hmm. If you can understand them, you might be able to be more empathic. You might have improved emotional intelligence. If you can learn to act with those emotions, well, then you're going to develop a strength and a skill. So... Emotional fragility would be around your ability to handle such emotions. So the things you would want to be concerned about as a parent is if when your kid does get upset, they're unable to act with it, right? They isolate. They lock themselves in a room. They won't go to school. They won't do projects. They won't call friends. They, they withdraw from life, right? Now, they have to, you'd have to allow that to happen, Right? Let's face it, right? The only way you allow that to happen in your home is if you're afraid of how your kid would react when you push them to do something. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to another practical strategy. Make sure there is a hierarchy in your home. Your kids do not run your household. This is something new. Be a parent. Have authority. You are the rule of law within that home and it must be abided. It is not good for kids to feel like they can control their own home. It creates a fear and insecurity in them. Trust me from working with kids the majority of my career, the ones who have complete independence and there's a passivity and parents don't want a parent, those kids aren't happier, right? They eventually interpret that as not being loved. And they view their parents as emotionally fragile. Kids need boundaries, limits, and structure. So be a parent. Instead of being a friend. You cannot be a friend. There's plenty of friends out there. Be a parent. I would never let my kid isolate in response to something. So why do so many parents choose that friend route versus actual parenting? I mean, I, I, I know because as a teacher, I see it too. I mean, I see it a lot. And Yeah, I guess the question is, how do you find that balance? Yeah. Because, well, and I'm, I'm just thinking, like, the things I look forward to in my life with my son could be interpreted as him being a friend, 
you know? So how do, how do you be a parent in a friendly situation? Like if I want to go out on a hike with them or if I want to take them and do things and experiences, um, you know, those are things that I would typically do with, with friends now, but like, how do you do it with your child and, and have it be that hierarchy, that structure in, in a way? That's a father son activity. I, I would not argue that it's a friendship activity. Okay. Like you have to be able to, you have to discipline your children. Mm-hmm. You have to have opinions. You got to correct them. Friends don't do that. Yeah. Right. And you can do all those things well on a hike, right? Like we see some of the kids who have the most difficult time behaviorally, um, you know, parents just don't really know how to discipline. They're inconsistent. They're reactive. They think parenting is about yelling. They're also hearing opposites on both ends, right? The mom will say something, dad will say others, or, exactly. you know, part, it, it, it's all over the place. Yeah, the, Solid most, message. the most important thing is consistency with parents. And, you know, I do believe as a parent, you have to be clear about what your values are. The best parents I know are very clear about what their values are. And so when their kid acts outside of those limits, they pull their kid right back in Mm -hmm. forcefully if they have to, right? And they maintain that structure in their home. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to add that rules without relationship equal rebellion. So if you're going to be a parent and you're not going to abide by the same values that you're trying to create in your kid, like you don't model them, like you react, you're reactive emotionally, you avoid things, there's conflict in your home, um, you don't know how to love, you don't know how to build a relationship with your kid, well, don't be surprised when they disrespect you. Don't be surprised when they don't follow your rules, right? Hold yourself up to a high standard. So there, there are certain parenting techniques that I'm going to use based on observation and Roger I'll use you as an example and I remember one situation when um, your first child was born we went out to a restaurant it was you and I and and Madison who's your oldest daughter Madison was two at the time she was two and and in the middle of that um, meal it had just arrived um, I think you took one bite out of your burger whatever it was she started throwing a tantrum in the restaurant and you didn't hesitate you didn't say anything to her you gave her a look she kept continuing the tantrum, you picked her up, you walked right out. And there I sat by myself to finish the meal for 10 minutes. And then you came back and sat down. I I think that is a great parenting technique. What were you accomplishing in those 10 minutes? Yeah, I tell parents, and I don't remember the president that said this, maybe it was Roosevelt, um, speak softly, carry a big stick. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't think you have to have to say anything when you're parenting your toddlers and your young kids because it's about the action. Mm-hmm. So what my two-year-old learned very quickly, if you act like that, you're not allowed to be in the restaurant. So um, I didn't bring her back in. We sat in the car. You had to come back out. Oh, maybe that's <laughs> it. Okay, I misremembered yeah. it. Yeah, I remember this clearly. And that was the last time I remember her having problems in a restaurant. Yeah, you owe me $25 for... <laughs> <laughs> And those things are, are, are really important as well. Um, I'll never forget this time when I was, I was probably a sixth grader talking about sports culture. So um, my father was one of our baseball coaches. He was um, coaching third base. And I hit one off the fence. And it's a stand-up double, but he kind of um, waved me in for third. And I slid and I got out. And the first thing I stepped up, uh, and I started yelling at him. <laughs> Why'd you send me things like that? He grabbed me behind my neck, walked me down to the car, and I sat there for the rest of the game. <laughs> you learn pretty quickly, right? There was a clear hierarchy there. I right? think I remember that. <laughs> um, and so you have to in today's in today's culture, parents are so um, so guilty and fear fear driven. They're like afraid to be parents. You have to establish that hierarchy very early. And you know what? Kids will learn really, really quickly that you act a certain way. And if you don't, the consequences are going to be something that you don't want to experience. Mm-hmm. And I believe all kids have the ability to be able to learn within that. So parents, um, their guilt and their fear do play a major role in, in raising a resilient child. Well, their kids don't, they don't want their kids to be upset. They don't want their kids to be upset with them. They're afraid that if they're upset, then that could cause all these other problems. I'm trying to send the other message. Allow them to be upset. Learn to live with it. They have to learn with, to live within the limits and the boundaries that are set within your home. Create a value-driven life. Push them to do things that they're... 
uh, their emotions are driving them to do something else. So I wrote something down that's um, dreams, dreams versus goals. So one of the things that I hear a lot of parents, and I think I've even done it, so I don't, again, I'm <laughs> making the same mistakes, but you know how you always say, follow your dreams. You always hear it in mainstream uh, media, movies, so you just follow your dreams. Well, I just kind of wrote down here, we always tell children to be big dreamers, but that their dream, their dreams are going to come true. They should follow their passion. But isn't that wrong? Shouldn't we be teaching them goals, setting goals? Once they accomplish goals, they'll feel a sense of achievement. Um, talk a little bit about that. Maybe I'm wrong. but No, it's a great question. And it goes back to having unrealistic expectations. All right. My daughter wants to be an actress. Very difficult to be an actress, mm -hmm. right? Um, so many people will say they want to dream of doing something like that. Now she's taken steps and works hard. She goes to a arts academy. She takes lessons. She's actually been in a film. She's gotten representation. Um, but it goes to, to, you don't focus on the outcome, right? You focus on the process and whether you become an actor could based on a lot of factors too. Like we were talking about this last week with um, country musician, Jeremiah James. Some of the best musicians aren't famous. Yeah. Right. If that's your goal to be famous, um, you know, we have to question whether that's realistic, but if your goal is to play music and try to make a living and you love doing it, then follow that dream. But you also have to be practical within it as well. So maybe my daughter wants to be an actress. Well, then you better be used to getting some side jobs too while you try to figure this out, right? How many starving actors are out there? I think the one thing many people fail to do when it comes to goals, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to take this back to the business world, is a goal is measurable. So you establish it up front. My goal is X, and the objective are those things that you're going to be doing to achieve that goal. So those list of all those things that you need to do in order to achieve that goal, those are the things that you're working on. A dream can always exist. A dream can be on the outlier, which is driving your goal, right? If your goal is to be famous, or your, I'm sorry, your dream is to be a famous actor, your goal should be first in the first five years, I want to do this. That's my goal. One of the messages I send to, to my kids is, um, persistence is probably one of the most important skills that you can learn because most people give up, right? There's only so many business owners, innovators. There's only so many people that do certain things. How is persistence different from resilience? It's, I mean, it's, 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 well, it's part of it, right? Yeah. I think it's part of it. And I, yeah, persistence would be, I'm just good. Well, does resilience have a lot, the prediction of failure? I wanted to bring that up. So, you know, if you have an idea or you have a goal, um, and then you sit there and you, you're, you're just thinking about it. And all of a sudden you're like, I'm not going to do it because I know I'm just going to, I'm going to fail anyway. This prediction of failure with our experiences. So for example, I've always wanted to be a writer, an author, right? Let's say I want to be. So I keep saying to myself, I'm going to do this. I sit down and I change, I change my lifestyle to become one. I decide to write every day for a few hours a day. All right. And that means I need to write often. I need to then submit it. I need to take criticism about it. Um, and I would need to be persistent in that for well over a year, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four, maybe 10 mm. to eventually achieve. Maybe a lifetime. Maybe a lifetime. There's no but, outcome. But, but There's nothing, nothing's exactly. guaranteed. So, but because I, I would then say, oh, you know, I'm never going to get this done. That, that kind of prediction of failure then gets in me and it's just easier to not do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> does we that make any sense? Yeah, we were yes, looking into some... I've been looking into some data in podcasting, right? And we have a goal here of trying to get a certain message out. So I've been doing it on one end with Twitter, just started in April. And then another end is here with this podcast. And you start looking at data. One of them says, you don't have a podcast until you have 40 episodes. The reason why is so many people start podcasts and stop them. So right. our goal is to get 40 episodes. Our goal is... The mission is to get your word out. Right. And... Whether that reaches 100 people or 100,000 people, it's about the process, mm -hmm. right? And I try to send out three, four, five, six tweets every day consistently, right? I'm just persistent with it. Whether, whatever the outcome is, I have no idea. But I'm aligning myself with my mission. My goal is to send out five tweets a day. There you go. My goal is to record this podcast today. I have patience to see today. I'm going to be on another podcast today. There's things that I think are important 
that in my life, I want to share that message. I just live it every day. What this means, I have no idea, right? You follow your passion. It's not about the outcome. It's about the process. And we have to be able to shape that within our kids. Yeah. If you're going to be an athlete, if you're going to be a good student, right? What is the reward? I don't know. Is the reward getting an A? Is the reward getting a scholarship? Is the reward getting, you know, winning with your teammates? Right? And rewards tend to be fleeting. Like you experience it really quickly. But the process in itself can be really enjoyable. Like I'm enjoying this conversation with you guys today. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not thinking about getting famous from a podcast. I don't even really care about that. Right? I care about being able to have some voice and somebody's listening to it. Maybe my kids even get to hear this. And I think we're doing good, right? By having these conversations. If they're going to be exposed to the world and the world is telling you, listen, if you feel sad, if you feel depressed, it's okay. Something wrong with you. We've got pills out there for it. Why don't you take a break? Let's see where we can kind of accommodate you. He sounds just like that commercial. Yeah, take a me day. Take a mental health day, right? And the world needs to accommodate you. And then what happens? Then they have to face reality. Yeah, because the and world keeps moving yeah. and they're not waiting for you. And reality isn't that, right? And as it doesn't matter how many people want to send you that message on social media. Social media is fake, right? Your little TikTok world, your, your Instagram, it's one big giant fake world. Don't live in it. Live in this world. Right. Agree 100%. You touched on two things, all right? So let's take it back to how to raise a resilient child. Um, by exhibiting a certain set of qualities that you're doing every day in terms of uh, uh, things to do every single day in order to achieve that goal. I think that's important for a child. And we, and we touched on this previously, how important it is for your child to observe you overcoming adversity in order for them to recognize the things that they need to do in their own life to achieve goals. Um, so I have one more question that I'd like to ask. And this is, again, this is kind of personal for me just because of, you know, um, my son with anxiety. And again, when I say anxiety, I don't, I just, mean, we're training you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We're tra- <laughs> Every son has anxiety. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, but how do we help kids um, build a stronger mental capacity to minimize those feelings that they'll get when they're anxious? You, you, you don't. don't. Your goal is not to minimize the feelings. Okay right? Important message. If you're hearing what I'm saying, it has nothing to do with the emotions. It has to do with your response to it, right? The best thing that can happen to your son is for him to be really anxious and get through it. Now, neurologically speaking, inhibitory learning, what that means is the next time he's in that same situation, he's not going to be overwhelmed by the same experience. So yes, you'll feel less anxious in time, but that shouldn't be the goal because something else is going to make you anxious And if you have that previous experience of being able to act with anxiety, then you're comfortable in forging ahead. So here's something that I did. I want to, we're, you know, Wawa has, he loves slushies. So (laughs) he's, he's now 11. And I thought, you know, what if I just gave him some money and I said, go in and get your, get yourself one because I don't do it. So I did it. Thoughts on that? Because, and he was really a little bit afraid. And he's like, I, I'm going to go by myself. I go, yeah, it's okay. I'm right here. I parked right in the front. I go, I can see you. Just go ahead and you do me a big favor because I have to get something done real quick with the twins in the back. And then, uh, you know, just go ahead and get yours. And he walked in and came out. Is that okay? I love it. Okay. Yeah, love it. That's exposure, right? Yeah, it's exposure and it's building a skill. Um, you know, we set uh, con- some goals for, for our kids um, within the school year. And it's okay to have expectations, right? So if you have kind of some expectations or, or your standards, they should be based on some available information or evidence, right? So if your kid does all their homework and studies for a test, they're generally performing in a certain area. So it's okay to have some standards or expectations. Um, but it's got to be based on everything you know about your kid. So one example is my daughter, who's also studying to be an actress, had some real struggles or problems with math growing up, right? She worked really hard and was able to get a certain grade. Was it an A? No. But we would praise her because we thought she worked really hard. Well, we'll have another child who's more inclined in math, and he or she um, might have a, 
uh, a better grade, but below what we think are his or her ability level. So we respond differently, right? Everyone's different. And so my kid this summer um, came home with a grade, just a few points lower than kind of what that standard was. He developed a PowerPoint presentation and provided it to me on the reasons why the, the um, grade was lower than expected and some things that were outside of his control. I was so impressed with him trying to like critically think and try to like persuade me that there was no negative consequence because it was that action that I thought was important. It was a skill to be built. And so we want to build these skills in our kids. Were they valid reasons or were they excuses? It's hard to tell, right? But he communicated it so effectively, it certainly came across as there was validity to it. Okay. So I have this written down as well because it's been preparation for this. And I've, <clears throat> I read this somewhere and I thought it was kind of neat. And I want your, your, uh, your opinion on it. Breaking down versus breaking through. Um, so if you think about when, uh, I'll just use Brooks as an example. Um, so Brooks goes and, and does an action and I don't know, feels like he failed. So he breaks down. Um, is it okay to, to kind of change that mindset by saying that's not a breakdown moment, that's a breakthrough moment? Those moments that they have where they don't necessarily succeed, can they move forward with that knowledge? Can we go from a breakdown to breaking through? Is that resilience? Yeah, I think that's the message. But then how, how you respond and the timing matters. So if you're talking about a breakdown, I, I imagine some form of like tantrum or crying, mm-hmm. right? When that happens, that's a good opportunity for you to ignore as a parent okay completely ignore like no matter what ignore the tantrum ignore the tantrum no no matter what age so if they're two three four five let's well you know at that point you might be implementing uh timeout strategies for emotion regulation but let's say you know you have an 11 year old who kind of has a little bit of a tantrum you have to be careful what you're reinforcing Reinforcing means increase the likelihood that's going to happen. So what you attend to matters. Um, So what I want my kids to do, again, it goes back to distress tolerance. I want them to experience emotion and learn to act with it. Having a tantrum, if it gets a response or reaction from the environment, is reinforcing that that type of action or behavior works, right? And that's what we talk about with our, our parents. You have to be very careful about what you're attending to. So if they're sitting in a living room and mom and dad are around and they, and he's throwing a tantrum, that should be a cue to walk out out to the deck or something or go to another room. You'll realize really quickly that kids don't throw tantrums if no one's watching. They need an audience. Yeah. And it's designed to get a reaction or response. Now, when no one's there, they have to self-regulate. So they self-regulate. And they have to come and could be like, can I talk to you right now? Like, this is when they're young, right? And you just kind of say, are you ready to con- communicate to me what you're feeling and what you're going through? Right? And think about what you're reinforcing. Think about what you're modeling. Now, if your kid's throwing a tantrum, you scream back at them, you pick them up, you throw them in their room. What are you modeling? There's no tolerance for the emotion. First of all, you're giving it attention. You're modeling ineffective behavior yourself, Right? You have to be a badass to be a parent, right? You have, it's a highly skilled job that you need to keep getting better at. So I am totally against this idea of consistently what we're doing is pathologizing kids' behavior and identifying them with diagnoses when most of the time we can see it's very much shaped within their environment, whatever that may be. So these are like little skills that are, that are important. Ignore behavior for the most part that you can, as long as it's not dangerous, that you don't want to see and praise and reinforce and attend to behavior that you want to increase and you want to develop. Could we go back? Cause you Kelly, your example um, was a, uh, after a, a failing attempt. At yeah. Something. Yeah. I mean, Brooks isn't going to throw a tantrum at, he doesn't throw tantrums, but so wouldn't the appropriate response after the tantrum be to sit down and discuss, then there's that message. Why, why do you feel you failed there? Yeah, we we mm-hmm. kind of, we addressed this before. What are you feeling? Why right. is it there? What can you do next time? Mm-hmm. How can you face it? How you can, you know, it's about problem solving and facing it. 
So that's the discussion. And of course, it's an opportunity. That's the message, right? Struggle is an opportunity. It's part of the process. Failure doesn't exist, right? It only exists in our minds. So failure is a word. Going back to language, what does that word mean to you? That you're not good enough? That you can't do something? What are you attaching to that verbally, right? So if failure means I gave, gave up a home run and we lost, that's putting this world into two categories. You're either a success or a failure, and it doesn't work that way. Like, so you have to learn from the struggles. Where did you fall short? How can I get better? So the tantrums that um, kids throw, so one last thing that I need to bring up because this is absolutely uh, happening in education and then all around, but when they throw a tantrum, a lot of parents I've seen at restaurants and what they'll do is they'll just pull out their devices and they'll just hand it to them. So here's my last and final question. Rewarded. You're rewarded. Electronics are replacing opportunities to develop mental strength. Is that It's lazy parenting. You know, it is absolutely lazy parenting. Let's call it what it is, right? Now, I understand that there's societal factors involved in here. More than ever before, you know, there's uh, both parents are, are working, they're tired. There's a number of things, but you can't be a parent. And this goes back to this counselor who posted thing. There's no such thing as laziness. Yeah, that's laziness, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to do what is necessary because it's harder, right? You do the easier thing. You'll pay for it down the line. Guarantee you, you're going to pay for it down the line. Kid throws a tantrum, screams, and they're rewarded for it with instant entertainment. You think they're going to develop tolerance for discomfort, boredom? You think they're going to be able to um, follow limits that society provides? Hell no. We um, we talked in the last podcast about uh, your child sleeping, right? And you let them cry. Yes. And how great that was for them to uh, self-soothe. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, reading him a book about, you know, sleep training. And it said, after four days, your child will learn to regulate self-soothe and, and that crying will go down. But if you break that pattern and you go in there and you don't allow them to go through that period, it takes almost 10 days to get back on track because you're training your kid to have this expectation that someone's always going to come in and jump in and, and save you. It makes me think about that, how hard it is to stay on track. It's a shorter period of time to just let them learn on their own versus you stepping in and then having to fix it. And, in the long and that goes back to the fear and guilt that parents feel and mm-hmm. anxiety that they feel about being a parent, about being that perfect parent. And this some, is an important life lesson too, because basically you're saying, are you willing to do what's hard in the moment? in order to achieve things that are later on, right? Yeah. Delay instant gratification, mm-hmm. right? So there's things you got to teach your kids if they want certain things that they're going to have to work for it. Like it's not going to be handed to them. And so the next time that those kids come up against challenge, it's normal for them. They know how to respond. They've been doing it their entire life. Yeah, but also as a parent, if you value your time, doing the hard thing now will provide more time for you to do the things you want to do later on. Absolutely. It's, it's hard at first, but you know, eventually yeah. it's going to get easier. Little kid problems turn into big kid problems. <laughs> that's a and good way big, to put it. Big kid problems <laughs> so, are much, much worse. I, I guess that's the whole purpose, you know, that I'm, I'm listening intently here is how do I have a, a, if I have a little kid problem, what can I do right now to prevent it from being a big kid problem? And you said flexibility in, in the last discussion. Um, but then also now, you know, not jumping in at a time when uh, a child is distressed. Just, you know, let, let them learn how to regulate their emotions. Let them to feel what they're feeling. Well, we were talking about your son in, a, in a, you know, that first year of life. And so when we were talking about flexibility, we mean your, your son has to be able to adapt to different environments right? yeah. off the routine. You know, has to learn how to be able to sleep when the conditions aren't so ideal. Um, and usually when you have multiple kids at one time, they have to learn that, right? So if you have a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and an infant, mm-hmm. that, you know, life doesn't get to revolve around the infant because you also have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. So, like, inherently, those parents learn that I have no other choice, right? And the kid then learns to adapt too, right? So too often, I think, um, you know, we become way too, like, you can go on the opposite end of the spectrum, become way too rigid and, and way too structured. It goes back to, like, 
talking about like bringing a, a toddler to a restaurant. You know, a lot of parents would just never do that situation because they don't want to have to deal with that tantrum. But how else are they going to learn how to behave at a restaurant, for mm-hmm. example, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, gone, it's going to take that. The younger they are, um, I believe the easier it is for them to learn it. And there's this great uh, behavioral program called 123 Magic. And it's, I think it's in this Love and Logic series. And um, that 123 is like that cue you know, for a kid to be able to we stop use, and self-regulate. We still use it with, even with Brooks sometimes. So that was the other, he's 11. That was the other <laughs> parenting technique that I saw you use Roger, that I'm definitely going to be using is Love it. the one. Yeah. Two. I've got, and a, you got to give the look, give the look. I've yeah, got a two, the I've two got a, look, the I've two got a look. 20 year old right now who, if I go, that's one, she'll still stop and like <laughs> and freeze. And like, think about what's next. It's like in condition. But that just goes back to, you know, we're talking about consistency. Parenting hard, is hard work. You have to be willing to do the hard things uh, throughout development if you're going to build resiliency in your kid. But I think the idea of that, just saying number one, it's sending the message that I've just done something that's not acceptable. Yeah, and that's that hierarchy, yeah. right? They're going to test it. Yeah, right. your second child. And, then they, and you have to be willing to follow through. <laughs> but resiliency can be something that we that people can work on correct oh absolutely yeah, yeah. i guess and, that was a better question actually, i wanted to ask we're talking yeah, about like how that. to train it yeah i like i like framing it that way is there any point in your life where you can become more resilient like 50 years old 60 years old they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks i don't put limits on human potential there you go okay it, it, do you believe it's harder as time goes absolutely on? right yeah you know, learning becomes something that becomes solidified. Mm -hmm. And obviously you're much more malleable and adaptive when you're younger. So are our brains. So it's much, much more difficult to teach new dogs, old dogs, all dogs, new tricks. Right. So that's why I encourage, we're talking right now about raising resilient kids where we're saying, do the things that are necessary when you're young. So they're resilient adults. And that matters. Mm-hmm. So they can learn the same, the things that you teach them, what they learn in their environment, they will take with them throughout their adulthood. So if they can't handle stress, they'll learn it when they're young. If they can't follow authority or rules or be able to uh, achieve things that are set out for them, they'll learn it when they're young. You know, if they believe that they can't handle difficult times, that they're a failure, that life is too hard for them, that they're not good enough. They'll take that all into adulthood, right? The time to, to work with our kids is when they're young. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.